0: The rest of you, we're going to set aside our time in First Timothy chapter 5, and we're going to take a look at some passages that are my favorites by far in the New Testament, and I'm sure they are yours. Turn to you, in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, if you would. I'm just entitled this message, and it's a series of messages through Luke, the greatest story ever told. It says to do with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Look there, if you would, in Luke chapter 2. Hope that uh, this time, this week, coming up to this Sunday, it's always a joy to have Christmas Eve or Christmas Day on a Sunday where we can come and really uh, just unite our hearts in the worship of the one who uh, is the reason for all of this and the season that we celebrate. But I love this chapter describing the birth of Jesus, which it does from verses 1 through verse 7, which is really our time together. We'll take a look at that. It's a joy to revisit it for me year after year. It's really part of the chapter is perhaps the most widely known portion in the Bible because it tells the story of Christmas. Most of the songs we sang this morning based on these passages. Tonight we'll talk more about that as we celebrate the table. Every Christmas though, for our family, uh, for for more than 30 years, we have sat down together in our living room and read this story. And so I'll read it with you now. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter two, uh, verse one. Verse 5, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Verse 6, and while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Stop right there. Very familiar words. We don't have to make up something to be new for you. It's the age-old story, the one that we Understand, and yet uh, they are the words the Holy Spirit carried Luke along to write to explain the most profound event in the history of the world. And, and the world celebrates the birth of Jesus in December, and as it should, but for all the wrong reasons, uh, for the expression of self-indulgence, for materialism, for partying and social events of all kind, and, and, and largely miss uh, the point, as we know. The real significance of the birth of God in human form is overlooked and treated trivially and overshadowed by everything else that's going on. Now, there's part of the text in Luke that comes right before what we're going to look at today. And I'm going to look at it because it's significant for us and helps us understand all of this. But that marvelous event happened back in chapter 1, verse 26. So turn back there if you would. Back to chapter 1, look at verse 26. In the sixth month of the pregnancy of Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, an angel comes uh, by the name of Gabriel to the city of Galilee. And that's in the northern part of the land of Israel. Of course, we're very familiar now, aren't we? Much more familiar with all the, uh, the strife and the difficulty and the war that's going on there. But it helps us understand a little bit about that area. Galilee is in the northern part of the land of Israel. The town was Nazareth. The messenger from God came to Nazareth and came directly to a young girl, a virgin by the name of Mary, perhaps 13 or 14 years old. She had been engaged to a young man whose name was Joseph, and Joseph was a descendant of David. So Gabriel comes to this town, to Mary, and this is what Gabriel said. Look at verse 28. He says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Verse 29, but she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this may be. Now, seriously, no one had seen an angel in in literally 400 plus years until an angel appears to Zacharias and Elizabeth. And and this is the same angel, Gabriel, uh, who's appearing again, so she's afraid. Now look at verse 30. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Verse 31, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. And you can almost hear Gabriel say, this is God's announcement to you. Matthew records it like this in Matthew 121. She'll bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You're going to have a baby. Your baby is going to be the son of God as well as your son. He's going to be David's heir. He's going to reign over the throne that was promised to David, and his reign will have no limit and no end. And Mary thinks, like anyone else would think in her place, this is impossible. And the angel says, no, not impossible. Here's how it's going to happen. Now look at verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. In other words, it's going to be a miraculous conception, supernatural. And now, if you think about that, uh, the Bible is full of supernatural birth. God had touched the barren wombs of a number of women. Uh, Sarah, who gave birth to Isaac in Genesis 21, and Rebekah, who gave birth to Esau and Jacob in Genesis 23, And Leah, who gave birth to Issachar in Genesis 30 in verse 9. And Rachel, who gave birth to Joseph in Genesis 30 verse 22. And Hannah, who gave birth to Samuel in 1 Samuel 1, 2. And Elizabeth, who gave birth to John in Luke chapter 1 verse 7. So it's not surprising to us, and if you think about it, uh, all children are a gift from the Lord. Every single one of them are as a result of His goodness, if you understand that, as we have looked at that very clearly. Psalm 127, 3, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord, every single one. The fruit of the womb is a reward. But the conception of, and birth of Jesus, although not the only supernatural one in the Bible and not the only child given as a result of God's goodness... The gift of this child was truly unique in a number of ways this was the only birth where the baby had previously existed this is the only birth where no earthly father was involved this was the only birth where the mother was a virgin this was the only birth where God took on human flesh this is the only birth where the baby was infinitely older than his mother this is the only birth where the baby was as old as his father This is the only birth where the child had two natures, both divine and human. And any one of those things are impossible to comprehend. Any one of those things you could ponder for eternity and likely will have the joy of doing that in the eternal state, thinking more about and having more understanding about all of those things. But these are the kinds of things that we can think about and we should think about as we're told that Mary did on that night. And we can tuck them away in our hearts to help us stay connected To Christmas so it's going to be a miraculous conception and just as a footnote not an immaculate conception which is the doctrine that God preserved the Virgin Mary from the taint of original sin from the moment she was conceived that was defined in dogma in the Roman Catholic Church in 1854 but the Bible gives us no indication whatsoever of what is obviously false doctrine the idea is God is going to plant life in you without a man and we can note from Luke 1 the angel says to her, and behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. So then knowing from the word that Mary went to visit Elizabeth in late March, when she had just conceived by the Holy Spirit, nine months later, Jesus was born. And we've looked at this extensively a number of years ago. You know, it, it does wear me out somewhat when people come and think somehow if we're celebrating Christmas at December 25th, we've incorporated a pagan holiday. I understand that sentiment. It's a little bit uninformed and badly informed. But here we can just see very clearly the Bible tells us that Elizabeth, uh, Mary went to visit Elizabeth right after the announcement. She just conceived by the Holy Spirit. Nine months later, Jesus is born, so you can do the math. It's a really simple story today, which is really wrapped up in the gospel. And, and when you come to Luke 2, then, as you think about all those things, you come to Luke chapter 2, the prophecy from Gabriel has come to pass. Nine months have passed since Gabriel's announcement, and Mary is full term, and she, in this passage, gives birth to the baby Jesus. Now, as Luke tells us the story, which is very simply told, the beginning of that is in verse 6. So we'll pick up right there and then we'll back up. So we're just going to follow the thought process here and and, and we'll look at this in this order and then go back and catch up with how God orchestrated all these events surrounding the birth. So look at verse 6. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, verse 7, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. That's it. Another one of those classic understatements. Nothing particular about the birth of Node. It was like any other and every other birth of any other baby. No guilt trip, just... Stated simply that they were in a stable, and Luke mentioned the time the days were completed. Uh, But there's more than just a nine-month gestation going on here again. The days were completed, just a vast understatement. As you understand the Word of God, you realize so much is packed into that. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. And so all of this is is a reminder that God, from the inception of things, had been ordering all things in order to bring about the plan of redemption. Galatians 4.4 says he's been working all this time to bring this to pass. The prophets, of course, foretold this date. John the Baptist, the one who would go before the Messiah, has now been born these several months ahead, and he will set the stage for Jesus' ministry on earth, and so the days were, that were completed is such a vast understatement because they were the days that were ordered before the foundation of the world. As Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So when you think about these days were completed, you just think about that vast understatement. Has God has been working out his whole plan of redemption and, and his foreknowledge from the foundation of the world in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son born of a woman. Just so marvelous. And now they've all been brought now to fruition. And and Luke gives us some context so that we can see how God ordered the events of pagan governments and leaders. And we don't even get to see any other part, just kind of how He ordered pagan governments and leaders and all of that, bringing about the situation where uh, Mary and Joseph are precisely where they're supposed to be. We don't know why it was picked at this time period. We don't know why the Lord sent the Lord uh, Jesus at this time. We, we, there's so many things that are questions. Fullness of time, we just have to rest really wonderfully in God's statement, in the fullness of time. So he brings about a situation where Mary and Joseph are precisely where they're supposed to be, the event is in verse seven, she gave birth, and the setting is what enriches it and really informs all of it. So back up now to verse one, and we'll look at that. Pick it up at verse one. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone, verse 3, was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Let's just look at a few of those phrases. I think will enrich it for us. It says, in those days, this is the days when Herod the Great was ruling in Israel, in the days when Gabriel came to Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist was born, and it says, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the, all the inhabited earth. And it's amazing how God orchestrates all of this because we can see just in this snapshot right around uh, this time period, whether God has willing or unwilling subjects, it doesn't matter whether he has knowing or unknowing subjects, makes no difference. Part of Uh, God bringing together the details and all of the components of the birth of Messiah, right time, right place was to move in the mind of Caesar, just like he's moved in the minds of wicked rulers before him. And since that time, we certainly saw in Daniel and certainly in Nehemiah's time, we've seen God move in the hearts of wicked rulers to do things he desired uh, for them to do. We're going to see that very clearly as we move towards the end. We're going to see as all of history moves towards that culmination of the catching away of the church and the setting up of the seven years tribulation. We're going to see God move in the hearts of wicked men to set up things. We're seeing it in Israel right now. We're seeing God move wicked rulers in Russia and Syria and Lebanon, all to do the things that they're doing. So this is not a surprise for us that God uses unwilling subjects and willing subjects and accomplishes precisely what he wants to accomplish exactly at the time he wants to accomplish it. And that's what we see going on here. So it's not a surprise for us if we have eyes to see the long view of history and the future. We can see this pretty easily. And part of God bringing together the details and all the components of the birth of Messiah The right time and the right place then was to move in the mind of Caesar just like he moved in the minds of all kinds of rulers before. And God orchestrates the circumstances and we know them now as history to bring about his will. He impressed on the mind of Nebuchadnezzar to conquer Jewish land and he let the Jews know he was going to do it. And, And this name was Caesar Augustus. That's how we know him in the New Testament. His actual name, if you know history, is Gaius Octavius. He was known as Octavian. He was given the name Caesar. That's a title like a king or emperor. And Augustus, of course, is an adjective meaning revered one, honored one, or majestic one. He's a a smart man. He's a fearsome ruler. He created the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that stretched over the whole Roman Empire. Uh, He was such a noteworthy man that he was called, and it's inscribed on a stone, the savior of the world. And that's how highly he was revered certainly by himself, but uh, those that were clouded in their understanding worshiped him as God and as a deity. So just picture this, this one who was the false savior of the world and knew nothing about the birth of the true savior of the world. As we move into the tribulation time, you're going to have another false savior show up and then the real savior is going to show up. So this is not a new pattern for us as we see the, uh, the word of God unfold, But in the normal course of his rule, he determined that a census needed to be taken in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was very large. He used a census basically to figure out what the tax revenue would likely be so he could know what that income was going to be. And he wanted to tax the full extent of the Roman Empire. He said a lot of overhead. Providing services for all these nations which had now become vassals in the great power of Rome. So it's not a surprising thing for him to do it, but it's amazing how the Lord moved in his mind to have it accomplished. And so it's not a stretch uh, that, that Caesar, the false savior of the world, who knew nothing about the Old Testament, nothing about the coming of the Messiah, nothing about God whatsoever, he's a pagan who worshiped the false gods of Rome and later would require worship of himself, and yet he unwillingly participated. In the most important prophecy, helping to announce and arrange the circumstances of the Messiah. And it was because he made a decision and he followed up with an announcement. And and then Luke records for us that he made a decree for all the inhabited earth, which just means uh, everybody who is under the Roman Empire at that time. And then verse 2 says, this was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And here, archeology, span and we've studied this before, of course, has vindicated the Bible about this census. There were two, during two different times of Quirinius' rule. This one would have been about 8 BC, resisted, and this is important, by Herod for about two years because the Jews didn't wanna pay taxes to Rome and finally enforced in about 6 BC. So, a Roman census was taken about every 14 years, another was taken around 6 AD, and which was the cause of a violent revolt but the earlier one is the one spoken of here in a fragment of a document found near Rome in the mid-1700s verifies uh, Corinus' participation in both of these. But the fact that they were forced to comply with the census by a certain time explains why Joseph and a very pregnant Mary had to make a 90-mile journey walking and riding a bumpy trail in the wintertime to take care of their responsibility and, and they couldn't have put it off any longer. But we can see God's hand then, we can see it working so clearly here through the tension between a wicked Herod the Great and a godless ruler of Rome to bring about an enforcement at, market again, a vast understatement, just the right time, at just the right time. So that they were there in Bethlehem when the child was born because it was God's plan that he'd made clear hundreds of years before. And Caesar didn't know anything about this, and Herod didn't know anything about the purposes and plan of God, but God was working all the details on a world setting, and now we don't know any more than somewhere around 6 to 4 BC is when Jesus was born. People who read Luke originally would know more specifically, of course. We know what we know because of Luke's remarks about the census. And I think it's important as you just think about the miraculous nature of these fulfilled prophecies. And we've talked about this before and how many fulfilled prophecies now in portions of Scripture that still have prophecies unfulfilled. So the things that we know uh, about what's been fulfilled helps us be secure in knowing the rest will be. But uh, Peter Stoner wrote a book a number of years ago. It's called Science Speaks, and he, he eloquently states this fact. Um, he, he talks about eight prophecies and the likelihood of them being fulfilled, and, and, Bethlehem being, and Jesus being born in Bethlehem is one of these eight. So listen to what he says. He's a mathematician. He says um, the probability to just, quote, eight, uh, eight prophecies being fulfilled in the 55-plus regarding Christ's birth, he says, the chance that any man might have fulfilled all eight prophecies is 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That's 100 quadrillion if you're doing the zeros. Stoner makes it clear how difficult it would be by illustrating this because those numbers kind of just fall into a black hole in our mind. He said, quote, if we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars and lay them on the state of Texas, they'll cover the entire state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly and blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up just the one marked silver dollar. What chance would he have of getting that right? 10 to the 17th power. And so when you think about all of this coming true, and you think about all of uh, the prophecies being spoken, it's amazing to us. And a lot of assurance comes as a result of it because we know what, we can read what the prophets have said. We understand what they say. And then verse 3 says, and everyone was on his way to register for the census. So all of this is working out just as it, as it was foretold. And the blind man walks up and picks up the one that's marked. How unlikely is that? Each one goes to his own city. Now interestingly enough, there, there are no surviving records found so far that indicate that this was a requirement from Caesar. Uh, Romans would have been happy for people to just register in the town where they lived. So what seems most likely was that there was a Jewish stipulation, probably by Herod, deciding that everyone should go back to the place where the records were kept. And you remember, of course, and this makes it likely that this is the case, when the children of Israel came to the land of Canaan, the, the whole land was divided into sections and tribes were given certain sections. And told that that was theirs for perpetuity and they were going to be there. And that if any was sold after seven years, that was to be sold back. And all the stuff that was supposed to be there. And and in those tribal sections, families were given areas. And among those families, there would be certain areas where they would live. And certain villages uh, would be uh, where their families would have settled. And so uh, the scribes were particular about keeping genealogical records. They wanted to know about all the tribes. And so uh, when they would do uh, for some unknown Jewish purpose, each one was sent to their ancestral home. And I think it was connected probably to that. But it was all orchestrated by God for his purposes. He had Caesar Augustus make his decree earlier or later. Had he done that, if Herod had resisted for shorter or longer in in exercising it. Uh, The child would have been born in Nazareth and not have fulfilled prophecy. And and that's important to recognize because then we could conclude that although the prophets said he'd be born in Bethlehem, that God couldn't control circumstances. But that didn't happen. And it's never happened before, as we saw illustrated as we went through the book of Daniel and other places. And it's never going to happen because God controls everything. He literally writes history as his story. And we saw what was happening in the world through Luke. Now let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, that's the southern portion of the nation of Israel, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house of the house and the family of David in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. Now we know from the book of Micah, every Jew knew that Bethlehem would be the place of the Messiah. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 Uh, Micah says, but as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth. For me to be ruler in Israel, his going forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. And there it is, very clearly stating where the Messiah would be born. And so, as we said, had Caesar made the decree early, had Herod resisted for longer, then we wouldn't have been there. And yet it seems the most unlikely of events to happen to Joseph and Mary until Augustus puts the census in motion and Herod adds a further caveat and the end result being this young couple living in Nazareth were going to be in Bethlehem. And because Herod had resisted, the date was specific and the date was enforced and they were going to be there at a very moment when the child was born. And and went there in the ninth month of pregnancy, and we saw all the likelihood of that from Stoner's book. And, and the Lord arranged all of that, and I'm persuaded that it didn't take much to persuade Mary to go. She would thought about all of this. She understood what the angel had said. She was afraid that why had they picked her. She'd been pondering all of the events happening to her and around her in her heart. She was undoubtedly familiar with where Messiah was supposed to be born because she would have been familiar with the Old Testament and Micah's prophecy. So it's likely that uh, when everything began to happen, maybe she knew she didn't have to be convinced. Verse 6 says, while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Again, as we think about just what we've talked about, just the small time that we have, it's a vast understatement, happening precisely as the Lord had planned it, using the egos of men and the rebellion of men, uh, using willing men and unwilling men, and it happened just as it was foretold 700 years before, and so they were there and the days were completed for her to give birth nine months were up absolutely nothing said about the details nothing verse 7 says and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloth so let's think about that beloved the lord the creator of the universe the lord of omnipresence the lord of omniscience and all power was confined to a body of about 10 pounds in weight and a little under two feet in length. little Life came out into the arms of that young father, and neither of them could have fathomed what was going on, and they'd been told by an angel, and everyone around them had absolutely no idea. And it says, she gave birth to her firstborn son. It, the, Luke uses the Greek adjective protoōkos here, firstborn, first begotten, of preeminence, really superior, firstborn of all creation. Not the first ever born. He doesn't use monogenes, the only son. He doesn't say that. Again, the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe she had only one child and she was a perpetual virgin until her death. That's not true. She had many sons and many daughters, Matthew 1, 24 and 25 says that Joseph kept her her virgin until Jesus was born and after that Joseph and Mary had normal relationships as any husband and wife would and they had boys and they had girls and the Lord blessed that And Matthew 13 53 through 58 tells us that uh, that the people and the religious leaders knew that Jesus had half brothers and half sisters so Mary isn't sinless and she doesn't stay perpetually a virgin and after Jesus is born she and Joseph have a normal family but Jesus was the firstborn And it's important, I think, to point out, because not only is he the firstborn, which of course supports the fact that she was a a virgin, but he is the firstborn, which of course means that he has the right to inheritance. Frankly, Joseph probably didn't have a lot to leave him. He was a carpenter. Mary didn't have any great estate, as far as we know, to leave him. But what he did have was the right to what? Right to the throne of David. That's very clear what Gabriel said to Mary. So in simple and really uncluttered statements, Luke is carried along by the Holy Spirit and relays the most important, really the pinnacle, the, the central story of all mankind. The firstborn of all creation, not just of Mary, is born. And Mary, it says, lay them in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And that last statement, because there was no room for them in the inn, has become very familiar to us as part of Christmas. It's certainly part of the things that we see in decoration. And it's really not a fable, as the text indicates. Luke doesn't tell us where they were. We know very likely in the place in modern Bethlehem known as the Grotto, the Church of the Nativity sits over the cave in which the birth of Jesus occurred. Caves were commonly used as stables at that time. We look at more of that tonight. In in 135 A.D., Hadrian is said to have had a Christian site above the grotto converted to the worship place for Adonis, the Greek god of beauty and desire. Later in 327, though, Constantine commissioned a church over the site that has traditionally been considered the birthplace of Jesus. So, in the winter, 2,000 years ago, the creator of the universe, the eternal God, entered human society as a baby. Creator of the universe put on humanity, the Lord of heaven came to live on earth. On a normal night in Israel, with no fanfare, no celebration by any human, a child was born. No relatives waiting with a warm home, nobody to care for this little couple, no room for them. The temporary home was a cave serving as a stable full of beasts of burden and the smell of all that. That's certainly symbolic of the future of Jesus, humble as a lamb, coming for one purpose. This story and Jesus himself get swept up in this conglomeration of all that is modern Christmas, relegated to folklore, relegated to the invention of man, but we know differently. The Bible is very clear about this. An inconspicuous birth, Followed thirty three years later by humiliating death on a cross, and three days later by impossible from human perspective resurrection. Seems so ridiculous to an unbelieving world, doesn't it? It Seems like foolishness when we say that. But it was the beginning of the kingdom that is eternal and the fleshly bridge between a sovereign God and sinful man. The kingdom has come, beloved. It's here. been here. And I like as we maybe perhaps next year get the foretaste of the angels excitement because they understood even better than those on earth what was actually happening. Probably was incongruous to them to think that the eternal one was going to come and walk the earth with sinful wicked men who had thrown off their their Creator had thrown off God's sovereignty over them, and yet He was going to come and die for all humanity. But someday, everything that seems hidden and unimportant is going to be brought to the correct position. Someday, it's all going to be fixed, and Jesus is going to return to catch away His bride, and He came to establish that church, and He's going to come and get it. He's going to begin to get the world's attention. The manger is empty and the cross is empty and the tomb is empty and now the throne is occupied beloved for all eternity and Spurgeon is quoted as saying the king has come and now he must be acknowledged so it's a joy for us to do that today we did it in our songs we did it in our prayer time we did it in our reading I hope you've been doing that today in your own heart let's pray if you would and we'll dismiss our time together as we focus on this simple story that's just so understated and so wonderful in its its scope. Lord, we thank you today for this time of worship. Even in preaching these words earlier as we sang these words, we still don't grasp the scope of all of that as we sang Emmanuel, God with us. We understand that Jesus came. We understand that he walked among us, that he lived a perfect life. Uh, that he died a substitutionary death for the sin of man and your wrath fell upon him instead of us. Reason for his birth to die. The fact that in, in time had been completed for Christ who was of eternity past to come and be born and be captured in time, if you will, and have a human body for all eternity, is such a joy to us, and a mystery. It's a joy to us because we we have someone who can relate, tempted just as we, guessed without sin, and now resurrected and sitting, Father, at your right hand, making intercession for us. How marvelous is that? And we're so grateful and overwhelmed by that. And we, as we think about the. Uh, the stable as we think about all that occurred to get them there and all the way that you orchestrated uh, orchestrated history. Father, I pray that it won't grow old for us, that in this story, there's no fresh things. It is the statement of your word of God to make it clear to us that Messiah has come. The king has arrived and he must be acknowledged. And Father, so we do that today. We acknowledge in submission uh, to all that your son is and has said that he is and he did. If you sit here today, and it is always my desire to make sure you understand this, perhaps you came with relatives, you're here and listening, perhaps the king has come and has to be acknowledged. And that's precisely what Romans 10, 9 and 10 says. You have to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Doesn't mean just a Lord of a few things. He's king and Lord of everything. In order to be saved you have to submit all of your life to him just as you would uh, just as you would a human monarch here is the king of all eternity who has come you have to deal with him this way confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead he died on your behalf for your sin and bore the wrath of God you deserved you live today you live today you take your breath if you're unredeemed you take your breath as God, as part of God's mercy on you. The fact that He hasn't slain us, He didn't slay us before we came to faith in our sin is His mercy. It's His long-suffering. It is salvation that He waits that we can understand. Perhaps today you understand for the first time. Your heart you believe and are justified. The mouth you confess and you're saved. Not just words, but an understanding of who He is and what He's done. This baby in the manger bore the sin of the entire world. He waits to come again, and in His waiting, He gives you a chance to respond to Him. Today you can submit. It's not hard. Admit that you're a sinner. Repent. So turn away from those sins. You don't want to do them anymore. And believe by faith that God has laid all your sin on Jesus. That he has taken it to the cross and paid for it, and then was raised to prove the payment was sufficient. And you'll be saved. You begin to be to live the life God had designed for you all along. A relationship with Jesus which has no end and only good things from here on out. Life you'll live on earth as a as a believer will be difficult. It will be full of many trials and difficulties. If you walk with the Lord, many in your family, and perhaps some of your closest friends will turn away from you. They'll ridicule you. But that's what they did to Jesus, and they nailed him to a cross. So uh, the master, the the servant is not greater than the master. But understand that your sins have been forgiven, and this time on earth is temporary. The time in eternity is forever, and you can choose today. The Lord has called you. You can choose today where you spend that eternity let today be the day if you don't know uh, you need to know more about this you'd like us to talk to you more about it you need some more information right there on the back of the seat you can respond to that QR code and, and we'd be glad to help you understand this further to disciple you if you confess Jesus as Lord and believed in your heart today God has raised him from the dead it'd be our joy to to help you grow and put in your hand uh, discipleship that can help you come to the knowledge of what he wants you to do and how he wants you to live. Lord, thank you today for another opportunity to give out the gospel, for another Christmas season, perhaps another year that we have here on earth as we wait for your son's return. Thank you for orchestrating all things up to this point and from this point on, that even today as we look with hearts of hope and we long for your returning, that we can see that you're working all things according to your plan. As you begin to turn your attention on your own nation that you love and that we love, we are aware that time is short. And we have all eternity to celebrate all the victories, but only this time that we live to do the work you've given us to do. Help us to be found faithful to doing what you asked us to do with what you've given us to work with. pray all this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and for His sake. And all God's people said, Amen.